Is that my Dr. Pepper? Yes. Oh. It was. It was. Oh, you're welcome to it. Abby, I have your paper for no, 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 no. <laughs> Okay, so um, I brought in this very puzzling poem by Marvell called The Unfortunate Lover, which I mentioned to you last time. And um, one thing I thought we would do is puzzle out what we could about it. Um, it's, uh, it's very strange um, and interestingly strange. I also thought maybe we would do um, one poem by Vaughn, um, if we have time. And uh, if, if we don't have time, we won't. Um, so for our last three classes, and we decided we were going to try and do 10, 10 o'clock on April 30th. Is that what people thought would work May for? Oh, is it May 1st? OK. Um, so 10 AM on May 1st. Um, Eleven. That's right. You said eleven. Wait, is that? Does, do we have classes? No, it is. Optional. You don't. You. It, so it's a makeup class, which is optional. Um, so we have to make up the class that we missed with this optional makeup class. Um, also, is there anyone here who thinks um, that they handed in a paper that they didn't get back, or that I didn't just tell them that they wouldn't get back until the end of class? Okay, I just want to be sure. Um, there's at least one one undergraduate who hasn't handed in a paper yet. Um, okay, so um, how should I introduce this poem? I'm not sure whether I should tell you certain things about Wait, it. Sorry, will the makeup class be in this room? Um, I, I have to find out, probably. Okay. Um, but I have to go talk to the registrar's office and what they will do is what they always do, which is for no reason at all, put it in a completely inappropriate room somewhere else. Right. And then I'll say, well, can't we have the room that we have the class in? And they'll say, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so probably. That's my way of saying probably. Um, all right. So um, how do you love? Now, so after a couple of weeks of Marvell, what do you think of it? <clears throat> Thumbs up, thumbs down. <laughs> Simplifying it. Yeah. Thumbs up. Way up. <laughs> that was the. That I, was the I don't think I would give the, the thumbs I would give would be so far up as they were if I hadn't studied him in this course. I think that without a, a lead close reading, I, I would have missed most of what I've gotten out of reading him. Yeah. Okay. Um, as, as I did when I read him on my own. Um. I think he's the kind of poet that um, what happens with lots of people is they dip into him, and every time they dip into him, there's just something more there, and um, that 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 experience of just you know he what he loves doing is um, describing things paradoxically, um, where the paradox is delightful. Um, rather than um, tendentious. And um, in a way, if you wanted to sum it up in a sentence, it might be that 
Um, the world, the world itself is delightful because it makes possible these delightful and paradoxical formulations about it, um, and um, so he, he thinks that's just great. And um, when he writes um, poems like *Upon Appleton House*, um, which is pretty remarkable, I mean, it's it's part of the thing about Marvell is that there are in places where you can just relax and and um, have a low intensity experience. Um, it's uh, you have to pay a whole lot of attention um, to get um, to stay with the poem, um, and it's worth it. But it's all high points in Marvell, and um, upon Appleton House sustains that for a really long time, for almost eight hundred lines, um, which is you know getting close to a book of Paradise Lost in length. Um, which, by the way, what we should be reading for those <laughs> um, three extra days um, is I think what we'll do is the first two books of Paradise Lost. Um, how many people have never read any Paradise Lost? Um, okay, so the first two books of Paradise Lost, which I think will blow you away, as well as um, a couple of other passages in Paradise Lost um, from later on, which um, I'll tell you about. But Paradise Lost is very easy to get. Um, and if you want a particularly good link, I'll give it to you. Um, but you can just Google it, and um, you, you won't find it difficult to find it online. Um, so um, one of the things upon, uh, about Upon Appleton House is um, the political um, context of it. That is that Appleton House itself, as we find out, he tells a story of... Um, of Fairfax's ancestry and how Fairfax's father was in love um, with a woman, but then um, she entered the um, priory, and um, there was all this beautiful sense of why it would be a great place to be, but um, also it had to do with the destruction of the monasteries, the destruction of church lands. So, it's, so Appleton House had been a place of Catholic worship which is then destroyed um, with the, by Henry VIII. Um, we talked about this before, the bare-ruined choirs that Shakespeare talks about in Sonnet 73 um, is the destruction and the usurpation of Catholic lands, Catholic buildings, Catholic um, gardens, Catholic areas. Um, and Marvell tells it as a sort of myth, um, and then he brings us to the present day where General Fairfax has decided not to continue to pursue um, the parliamentary ambitions of Oliver Cromwell. And so he retires. Um, that is, he's one of the parliamentary generals. He was actually um, um, originally Cromwell's superior in the parliamentary army, but he, but he decides he doesn't want to conquer Scotland. He wants... Um, he doesn't want um, to extend the English Revolution by violence. And um, so a revolutionary hero, um, he nevertheless retires to Appleton House, where Marvell is a tutor to his daughter. Um, and all of that, it's like all of the last hundred years of history is focused on this place and focused on it aesthetically. That is... Um, here is um, the kind of place it could be, and this is the kind of place England could be, 
Um, and what makes it as beautiful a place as it is is um, goodwill. Um, and just as um, without paying, with, without attending or evaluating or caring much about about the political stakes of Marvell's um, um, position, it's just worth noticing um, how in that poem, just talking about this house where Fairfax lives enables him to talk about all these things. English history for a hundred years, contemporary English politics, um, religion, um, the idea of virtue, the idea of, um, of goodwill, and um, to do it in this beautiful description of the house and grounds. So the kind of thing that we saw in T. Penshurst and in Harvest Home, Marvell extends that enormously. Um, in talking about the country house. Um, all right, so let's look at the unfortunate lover. I think we will go around the room. How many cents do we have? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Okay, so there are um, eight paying customers. Um, and so why don't we um, do it that way? So, um, Daniel, why don't you read the first stanza? <clears throat> Alas, how pleasant are their days with whom the infant love yet plays. Sorted by pairs, they still are seen, by fountains cool and shadows green. But soon these flames do lose their light, like meteors of a summer's night. Nor can they to that region climb, to make impression upon time. So I think that's a great first stanza. We'll go over it. Um, and now I'll tell you what, that this poem has sometimes been called, at least once, but I think a lot of people have endorsed it, the worst love poem ever written. <laughs> um, so that's kind of fascinating. Um, and so the first stanza is so good that to turn into the worst love poem ever written after that stanza um, is not, it's not obvious how that will happen. Um, but um, it is a beautiful first stanza, and I think recognizably Marvellian. Um, so uh, alas, how pleasant are their days with whom the infant love yet plays? So whose days are pleasant? The lovers. The lovers. Who's the infant love? Uh, Cupid. Cupid, yeah. You know, Cupid the way... It's really hard not to think of Cupid as we see him in cartoons with a diaper on. Um, but, um, sorry? Yeah. But he is a fat baby even in, in the ancient iconography. Um, it's just he's not wearing a diaper. Um, <laughs> is, is there, like, context for him being modeled after Cherubim? Is that, like, the... Yeah, he's a, the, the word amoretti is... Um, uh, cherubim are, are actually modeled after cupids. Oh. It's the other way around. Cherubim are adult angels in in reality. <laughs> if you were to meet a cherub, it would not be a child. Um, I thought those were the seraphim. No, seraphim are just a higher order. Poor of angels. angel understanding. There is a book. Yeah. Um, there is a great book called A Dictionary of Angels. Uh, fantastic book. Um, I think there, you might actually be able to find it on the web now, but A Dictionary of Angels, um, including the Fallen Angels. That's the whole title, A Dictionary of Angels, <laughs> including the Fallen Angels. Um, and it's uh, angels from the Kabbalah, angels from the Christian tradition, angels from the Islamic tradition. Are there illustrations? Um, some, yeah. Um, but at any rate, um, the idea is that, that little um, loves, amoretti in, is the Italian name, 
um, you know, they're, they're these, these spirits of love, they're little cupids, and then um, they, because they had wings, they were Christianized. Um, and that's where we get the idea of the cherubic smiles. But um, in, in, in reality, uh, the cherubim are adults. Um, would you really want to be a little child through all eternity um, in heaven while the adult angels were talking about interesting things? <laughs> well, that begs the question. Do they really talk about interesting things? Yeah. What are How about, well, to, to quote Milton, while they have sex by interpenetrating each other entirely, <laughs> which is what one thing that happens in Paradise Lost you're too young for this section, but one thing that happens in Paradise Lost, I mean, this is, we're not talking, we're not talking the kid stuff like Dunn. Um, one thing that happens in Paradise Lost is Adam says to Raphael, who is visiting the Garden of Eden, um, to warn him uh, to be good. Um, um, Raphael, Adam says, so what's it like in heaven? And they have a long conversation. Raphael is called the affable archangel. He's very friendly. Um, and um, Adam says, okay, so Raphael says, well, I got to go. It's dark. It's getting dark. <laughs> and even though I'm an angel, I got to go. Um, and Adam says, well, I have one more question, which is um, you say that heaven is even better than earth. Um, and you're about to leave, and even I are about to go to our bower um, where we're going to have the greatest experience that you can have in paradise, all of which is great. Um, and so the question is, what about you angels? Do you have sex? And Raphael blushes. So the angel blushes, and he says, well, I can't really explain it. Um, <laughs> but you know, thou knowest us happy, and without love, no happiness. Um, and then he goes on to say, and think about it. You guys, you have bodies, which means that there's really only so far that you can penetrate each other. <laughs> Whereas we're entirely spiritual. We're made entirely of spirit, so we, there, there are no boundaries, no integuments or bars to how much we can um, intermix. But I gotta go, <laughs> he says, and leaves. Um, so um, you might not want to be a cherub if you were watching the adults. Well, Cupid is, is highly sexualized in a lot of yeah. uh, uh, like Renaissance art and iconography. Yeah. One particular piece in the Met comes to mind, with, which is Cupid and Venus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, so in in um, classical and pagan um, and Greek and Roman. Um, Iconography. It's he. What he is is like a um, an adult mind and a um, who can be mischievous by yeah. being a child, um, and he can also. I think, although I don't know that this is actually ever discussed um, in the mythological backgrounds, but um, he can be different ages. So the, for example, the story of Cupid and Psyche, which is a late story in the mythology, is Cupid is a young man um, and um, has, goes to visit Psyche every night um, in the dark. She's not supposed to know who he is, um, but he goes to visit her every night. And 
it's not so that he can flutter around the room and look cute. <laughs> um, so, um, so the infant love is Cupid, but also what it means here is love when it's new. That is, um, it's, it would be a, a typical Marvellian um, use of a standard emblem or image, um, but to, um, to make you take the adjective seriously. Um, that is not love the infant, but love in its infancy, which is something you, would, you, know, you could expect in a modern novel, someone talking about love in its infancy. And um, so Marvell is seeing Cupid as when Cupid plays with, um, with young lovers, that means that it's the beginning of their love for each other. Um, when they're besotted with each other, that's why their days are so pleasant. Yeah, and, and that's doubled when, uh, by the ever yet, with whom the infant love yet plays. Yeah. So he's still playing with them, but this isn't going to last. Yeah, um, and the word "alas" will <laughs> is already a bit of a warning there. Um, alas, how pleasant are their days with whom the infant love yet plays, sorted by pairs. So they go they go around in pairs. They pair bond, sorted by pairs. They still are seen by fountains cool and shadows green, because I'm Andrew Marvell and shadows are green in my poetry. <laughs> um, <laughs> But soon these flames do lose their light like meteors of a summer's night. So um, what are the flames? Their passion. passion. And even they might be thought of as being like flames as as, um, they sort themselves in pairs. It's it's not quite a metaphor or not quite a simile, but um, they lose their light like meteors of a summer's night. Do people know what meteor means? Okay, so so it's it's actually any um, anything that you would see in the air, but usually something bright. So the scientific idea of meteor as a shooting star is that's actually a subset of of what um, um, I think I think lightning would sometimes be called meteors also. And Does that come from Latin, Italian, Greek, right? Isn't it meteor? I, I think it means sky. Uh, meteorology is the study of the skies. Can you break down the different parts? Um, no. Someone can. It can be done. It can be done. Um, and if you go to the museum and see one, you're not seeing a meteor, you're seeing a meteorite. A meteor, a meteor is a phenomenon, um, and it's something that you see, and a meteorite is the cause of that phenomenon. Um, this is the astronomy part of our class today. Um, we always have to have one. But soon these flames do lose their light like meteors of a summer's night. So here it would mean something like either heat lightning or shooting stars. Nor can they to that region climb to make impression upon time. So the flames can't climb up to the skies. Um, so even though they, lo- they, they lose their light like meteors on a summer's, of a summer's night, they can't even get to the sky where the meteors of a summer's night may be found. Yeah. Actually, it's not either Greek or Latin. It's Middle English. 
What? That's terrible. Oh, oh no, ultimately. That's okay. terrible. No, no, no. <laughs> it's like mixology if it's Middle English. It's I'm terrible. Wrong. I totally take it back. All right. It is both Greek and Latin. Yes. <laughs> both Medieval English meteor from me Middle French meteor from medieval, medieval Latin meteorum from Greek meteoron from neuter of meteoros high in air. Uh. From meta is high in aoros. Ah, okay. So the the Eeyore, not much of a, sorry. Eeyore hurtling through the sky. Yeah, not much of a shooting star. <laughs> Do you guys need a vacation? You uh, need a vacation. Get bungee, get bungee, get bungee. Without much of a tail. <laughs> So the eor in meteor means air, and the, the met in meteor means um, means above, high, um, as in uh, or after is the other thing that meta means, right? Um, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, so high in the air—that's what the word means. What's high in the air? Um, so they can't climb to that high in the air region to make impression upon time. Um, so love doesn't last. Um, love fades, as Ruth Gordon says in Annie Hall. Um, so there is, that's kind of the introduction to the poem. Um, and now we get a particular story that's going to be told by Abby, at least at its beginning. Twas in a shipwreck when the seas ruled and the winds did what they pleased, that my poor lover floating lay and air brought forth was cast away. Till at the last the master waved upon this rock his mother drave, and there she split against the stone. <laughs> yes, yes. See, we finally learned to pronounce that I-O-N right in the 17th century. Okay, yeah, so. <laughs> it's pretty strange. Um, Okay, so the first thing to 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 say, just just so as not to be um, misled too much, is my poor lover doesn't mean the person that I was in love with or who was in love with me. It means the person this story is about, um, and um, that that's an interesting thing for him to do. He does something similar in upon Appleton House when he's talking about the Israelites um, walking through the. Um, green sea of grass, which is dividing for them the way the Red Sea divided for the Israelites. And then one of the um, um, workers um, in the fields um, says, he called us Israelites just now. Um, and that's, that's a neat moment of he's not only describing, he's part of the scene that he's describing and people are responding to him. Um, so, but here he's just saying, yeah, so the lover that my story is about. Um, so um, we begin with, we begin the story itself with something like an account of um, what made him so unfortunate throughout his life. In other words, the my lover, just to say that, the title of the poem is The Unfortunate Lover, and therefore he's saying, that's the lover I mean, my lover, the lover that this poem is about. Um, so um, he... Um, metaphorically, but it takes a little while to realize it's a metaphor, um, he was born as a castaway. He was born as part of a shipwreck. Twas in a shipwreck 
When the seas ruled and the winds did, what they pleased that my poor lover floating lay, and ear brought forth was cast away. Um, and it turns out that he's talking about the lover's infancy. So the ship that's wrecked is whom? The word whom would be the giveaway here. <laughs> Who is the ship that's wrecked? No, he was, he's the passenger on the shipwreck. His mother? His mother, mm-hmm. yeah. Wait, so she's split against the stone and then she loses him? She, say it again. She's split against the stone. That's not how he was born, right? She died in childbirth. She dies in childbirth. So the oh, metaphor right. is she dies in childbirth <laughs> because he's born <laughs> via cesarean by a cesarean section, which almost no one survived, no women survived at the time, no mothers survived. Um, so the idea then was um, cesarean, it's, um, lots of people think it's called cesarean section because Julius Caesar was supposed to have been born that way, um, but in fact, um, the word, um, the, in Latin, it's prior to Caesar, and um, what it actually means is a cut. Um, the word um, kaido in, or is it, uh, I think it's kaido, um, means to cut in Latin. And um, so it's cutting into a section. So what happens is um, if the child is unable to be born, it's too big um, to get through the birth, birth canal, both mother and child will die. And um, the idea of a cesarean section is uh, the mother does die most of the time, almost all the time, um, but the child lives. Um, so here's a, here's a boy who was born, um, and th- through the death of his mother. So um, that's why how he was ear brought forth, he was cast away till at the last the master wave upon the rock his mother drave and there she split against the stone in a cesarean section so she was it was all they were both about to die and the last thing that happens is um, the um, midwife or obstetrician or whoever um, rescues the child from the mother who is now a wrecked ship so you can start seeing why this might not be the best love poem ever (laughs) um it's one of the most famous bad rhymes, if it is a bad rhyme. Um, and there she split against the stone <laughs> in a cesarean section. Um, so there he is, my poor lover floating lay in, in orphancy, you could call it. The sea him lent those bitter tears which at his eyes he always wears. So he pursues the metaphor. Actually, um, Taylor, you should read that. But the point is he's pursuing the metaphor of being born um, through a cesarean section, um, which kills your mother, is like being a person in a shipwreck. So we then go on from there. The sea him lent those bitter tears, which at his eyes he always wears. <laughs> and from the winds the sighs he bore, which through his surging breast did roar. No day he saw but that which breaks through frighted clouds and forked streaks, while round the rattling thunder hurled as at the funeral of the world. Great. So um, he's an orphan, but he's also a shipwreck. So he's surrounded by seawater metaphorically, and that's why his eyes are weeping salt water. 
The see him lent those bitter tears which at his eyes he always wears. And that's present tense. That is, um, he cried at the moment of his birth um, because he's born as a, as a castaway. Um, and um, he um, sighed. So he's a figure who cries and sighs from the moment of his birth, but he still does it. And from the winds, the sighs he bore, so the winds sigh and he bore those sighs, which through his surging breast do roar. So now the sighs um, roar through his own breast. No day he saw, but that which breaks through frighted clouds in forked streaks. That is, um, uh, do people know what it means to see the day? It's um, kind of lost as, a, as an expression or an idiom in English, but it's still present in French. Um, it means to be born. Um, and it, um, it meant that more, it, it was something that people knew in English, I think maybe even through the 19th century, um, when I first saw the day, um, is a way of saying slightly poetically, the day that I was born. Um, we still have it in seeing the light, um, although that now idiomatically just means that the light bulb has gone on over your head. Um, but, you know, well, come on, can't you see the light? But originally it meant to be born um, when you first see the light. Um, and so that's part of the um, pattern of imagery here. No day he saw but that which breaks through frighted clouds in forked streaks because because he's born in the storm that has shipwrecked the ship that is his mother. Um, while round the rattling thunder hurled as at the funeral of the world. So his birth was one of um, extraordinary violence, and that affected everything um, that happened later. Um, Rachel? Mm -hmm. um, while nature to his birth presents this mask of coralline elements, a numerous fleet of cormorants black that sailed insulting o'er the rack, received into their cruel care, cruel, cruel care? Cruel, yeah, rec uh, received Cruella into their cruel care, yes, Cruella de care. <laughs> the unfortunate and, the, oh my god, the unfortunate and abject heir, guardians most fit to entertain the orphan of the hurricane. Okay, so um, that might be easier to interpret or we might be getting to the swing of things. Someone paraphrase that. Um, he was adopted by... Cormorant's Black Pirates. No. no. <laughs> we'll be close. He went to an orphanage? Um, what are cormorants? Anyone? Oh, birds of seabirds. Yeah. Black, big black seabirds. Oh, prey. Adopted by birds. <laughs> Not literally. <laughs> yes. So who who are those birds? To pirates again. <laughs> pirates of the Caribbean. 
Wait. Guardians. Guardians. <laughs> Good. I, I don't know. I don't know what that entails. <laughs> you have, like legal guardians? Yeah. Oh, like the state. No, like the uh, family. Like oh. Notice the word heir. Okay. So um, that's actually the word to notice that um, he's coming with money. So he's the unfortunate and abject heir, um, and he's therefore, you know, think of this as a kind of Dickensian um, stanza. That So his mother dies um, when he's born, and all these family members say, oh, we're happy to raise him. Um, and are they self-insulting or Yeah. Okay. Um, we, um, insulting doesn't mean, ha-ha, you're dead. Um, it means cause. It means causing more injury. Um, our word insult as verbal um, jeering. Um, the the original meaning of insult, which you still get in medicine, um, is um, something causing injury. Um, the the um, the blow or or action or activity that causes um, injury. So. The cormorants see the wreck, and they immediately fly to it, sail to it, and they just cause more um, pain by what they're doing. Um, so nature to his birth presents this mask of quarreling elements. What's mask mean? Disguise? No. <laughs> Although, it's related, though. Oh, it's yeah, like, it is related. Like a... Like a a performance, mm. yeah. I'm um, related to disguise because frequently people in masks are masked. Um, that is, um, if you're a masker, um, then you might wear what we call a mask. Um, so he's given a um, an exposition of the quarrel of the elements. So um, notice again just the typical Marvellian entanglement of tenor and vehicle here. That is that um, nature to his birth presents this mask of quarreling elements, but it really doesn't. It's Marvell who has taken um, the idea that if you're born by a cesarean section, you can describe that as a shipwreck with, um, storm, with stormy waves and thunder and lightning and, and meteors and seas and so on. Um, that's Marvell's metaphor for the way he was born. But now he's saying, yes, nature showed him all of that when he was born, this mask of quarreling elements. Um, so um, he is now saying, um, you know, what Shakespeare does in The Tempest, that is, um, you can look at the pageant, you know, we talk about looking at the pageant of the clouds. And that's the kind of metaphor that the mask of quarreling elements would be. Look at this, the, in Antony and Cleopatra, look at, the, look at these cloud pageants. But there are no cloud pageants there. That was, that's entirely Marvell's invention um, for a description of um, how he was born. Um, but now it's as though nature has presented this mask of elements to him. Um, elements there means what? Storms. Sorry? Like the, the storms? Yeah, bad weather. Um, essentially, it means bad weather. You know, this will LL Bean will sell you um, coats that will keep you warm against the elements. Um, 
bad weather because the elements are earth, air, fire, and water, all of which can be yucky in a storm. Um, those are the four elements. So while nature at birth presents this mask of quarreling elements, while this is happening, a numerous fleet of cormorants black, black because they're in mourning, allegedly, mm-hmm. oh, so sad, that sailed insulting, or the rack received into their cruel care the unfortunate and abject air, guardians most fit to entertain the orphan of the hurricane. Um, that's, both, uh, sarc- that's both ironic and not. That is, to the extent that it's ironic, it's like, yeah, real fit. But it's also literally true. Why? Because they're related to him. Yeah, but it's true as far as the aesthetics of the thing goes. That is, given the fact that he's the orphan of the hurricane and that everything about him is um, about, about shipwreck and disaster... Then of course cormorants are the right element are the right thing to put in the picture here. Um, you know, if, if if white doves had come to rescue him, that wouldn't be fit for the picture being described here. They, um, what did they do? <laughs> they fed him up with hopes of air, which soon digested to despair. And as one cormorant fed him still, another on his heart did fill. Thus, while they famished him and feast, he both consumed and increased, and languished with doubtful breath, the amphibian of life and death. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of them is feeding him, and the other one is eating his heart? Yeah. Um, and they fed him with hopes and air. Um, what does that mean? Nothing. Yeah. Um, I eat the air promise crammed. You cannot feed capon so, anyone? How fares my cousin blank? Excellent well in faith of the chameleon's dish. I eat the air promise crammed. You cannot feed capon so. Shakespeare. Yeah, good. (laughs) I have nothing to do with this answer, Hamlet. (laughs) <laughs> Can you guess the play yet? Uh, King John. Yeah, you, you got it. Okay. Um, so yeah, they fed him up with hopes and air. So that is with nothing, with hope for the future. Oh yes, one day all this will be yours. In the meantime, we're spending it, which soon digested to despair. Um, what does despair mean literally? Anyone know? Lose faith in God. Um, I'm sorry, what's the etymology of despair? Oh. It's that pair, hopes and air. People say hopes and air, despair. No, they don't. <laughs> Spero, anyone know in Latin? Um, esperanza, anyone know what that means? Hope, yeah. Despair literally means no hope, not to hope, to to do the opposite of hope is to despair. To spare is to hope in Latin, spero. Um, to dispero is to give up hope. So they fed him up with hopes and air, which soon digested to its opposite, to despair. And as one cormorant fed him with hopes and air, still another on his heart did bill, um, was in some Dickensian way just um, being a parasite on what he was heir to. 
Thus, while they famish him and feast, so they're feasting while they fam- famish him. It is Dickensian. He both consumed and increased. So he was he consumed that is was consumed away, um, and increased because he's growing up, and languished with doubtful breath. Would he live? Would he die? The amphibium of life and death. So going back to the idea that this is a shipwreck, that he was born in the ocean, what is he now? He's on land. Yeah, he's, he's, um, it's as though land is now life and the ocean is death and he's um, halfway between them. It's not clear. Um, it's also ambiguous as to whether he will survive or not. Ambi means um, two in Greek. Actually, it means both. Both, yeah. And not to correct you. No, 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 no. Yeah. No. yeah. Okay, yeah. Thought, but I just feel like that's a very good way to describe, like, this is a general, but like how abuse works, because that's what they're doing. Yes. You do two opposite things at the same time. Yeah. But the person just like, kind of stuck in the middle and can't get out. So that's a really nice description of it. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, and it, that, that's, that's what um, R.D. Lang calls a double bind. Um, that is, you're bound both ways and, and um, are utterly trapped there. And I think it's psychologically, it's just a great description of, of that kind of um, entrapment. Everything is, is um, uh, there's no way out. He's imprisoned in, in his circumstances. It's terrible. So it's not really that much a love poem. I don't think. <laughs> yeah, as, love for the first as, yeah, as a love poem, it might be the worst love poem ever written, but it's not so clear what, how, how much of a love poem it is. But yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right, Taylor. That's a great observation. Um, Justy. And now, when angry heaven would behold a spectacle of blood. Fortune and he are called to play at sharp before it all the day. And tyrant love his breast doth ply, does ply with all his winged artillery, whilst he betwixt the flames and waves, like Ajax the mad tempest waves. Thank you. Um, so now he's an adult, and angry heaven, like the heaven of the storms, um, when it wants to behold a spectacle of blood, that is, you know, some some pleasant spectacle of violence wants to watch heavyweight boxing um, fortune and he are called to play it sharp before it all the day so um, he's the unfortunate lover and um, whenever angry heaven wants um, the pleasure of seeing human misery um, he is made to fall in love with someone and um to try his fortunes in love. So, again, following up on what Taylor said, what you could say is now that he's an adult, um, he's extremely needy. I mean, he, what he, he needs love. Um, but he probably, like survivors of abuse, his idea of what love is, is um, something that's going to be terrible. I guess... A, I might ask the question, do you think this is a true description of someone? And it seems to me that it's so good a description of a certain kind of um, way of always doing, picking wrong, 
um, in love. Not because, you know, you're a schnook, but because you're miserable. Um, that it has to be a true description of someone um, that Marvell knew. Um, at least of a type, but um, of someone who craves abuse, whose who's only possibility um, for love is um, that, that that person can countenance um, is someone who will treat him as badly as the cormorants treated him. Um, and so who can never find um, ease or tranquility or happiness in love. And now when angry heaven would behold a spectacle of blood, fortune and he are called to play it sharp before it all the day. What do you think that means, to play it sharp? No, I think it's with unbated weapons. That is, they're going to fight, but not with um, baited weapons so that they won't harm each other. Um, and tyrant love, so love is no longer the infant, but the tyrant now. And tyrant love, his breast does ply with all his winged artillery, um, all the arrows of love, whilst he betwixt the flames and waves like Ajax the mad tempest braves. Um, fights against the Tempest. Um, I read somewhere, but I don't actually know the details now, maybe some of you do, that one brilliant thing um, that Marvell is doing is he's actually combining um, stories about both um, Ajax the Greater and Ajax the Lesser um, here. And um, he's like two different um, Ajaxes simultaneously. Um, but I don't remember the details about that, but that seems like an interesting thing to observe. Um, Han? See how he, naked and fierce, does stand, cuffing the thunder with one hand, while with the other he does lock and grapple with the stubborn rock, from which he with each wave rebounds, torn into flames and ragged with wounds. And all he says, a lover dressed in his own blood does relish best. Great. Um, so we're back to the rock. It's as though this whole time he's never escaped the rock where his mother was shipwrecked. So now he's an adult. This is a description of his adult life. And um, what happens to him? I mean, if you, if you were to try and say, what is this in reality? It's that he's... Um, just gets into devastating um, relationships. Um, and he keeps fighting against the devastation um, that is his erotic life. So see how he naked, naked and fierce does stand, cuffing the thunder with one hand, fighting against the thunder itself. Cuffing there means punching. Cuffing the thunder with one hand. Well, with the other, he does lock and grapple with a stubborn rock. So he's fighting the rock itself, from which he, with each wave, rebounds. So the waves are hitting him, and he keeps hitting the rock, torn into flames and ragged with wounds. So this is really physical, this description of, of what's happening to him. And all he says, a lover dressed in his own blood does relish best. Um, so 
Um, he's fine with that. A lover dressed in his own blood. I think that's what it means. And all he says... A lover dressed in his own blood does relish best would either mean that every lover likes the kind of thing he says in this, that is that the unfortunate lover um, is something that any unhappy lover would like to contemplate him. It might be a kind of autobiographical moment. Um, And it's possible that he's saying the same thing, that he's fine with this because a lover dressed in his own blood is... um, the best thing there is. Relish there could be, it means the same thing either way. Um, I think if you have to pick one, it, it's um, that everything that he says, a lover like me relishes. But the word relish can be both transitive and intransitive. That is, um, something relishes, which means that it's um, appealing. Or you can relish something, which means you can find something appealing. And um, either way, he's appealing to um, the idea is that he would be appealing to other unhappy lovers, which I think is what the last stanza is about. Yeah. I just wanted to ask you: Do you think that phrase "dressed in his own blood" has a masochistic nuance? Yeah. Okay. Um, say more. <laughs> well, I mean, the primary meaning would be he's been fencing with love; they've been using unbaited foils, and so he has been uh, cut, mm-hmm. and therefore is bleeding. Um, but the emphasis on it's being his own blood, I mean, uh, th- that's interesting to me. And um, it, uh, it, just, it suggested to, to me that I don't know quite why, but suggested to me that he uh, is courting this danger. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's um, uh, you know he's he's losing the battle. Yeah. He's the one getting bloodied. Yeah. But he's it just suggests that he's constantly going for more. Yeah. Which is a masochistic. Yeah. Logic. Yeah, yeah, and that that's why he says that if he's the one speaking. He says, yeah, it's the best thing you can be is dressed in your own blood. Um, and that bring, you know, and that does bring back the idea of that, that was his birth, was dressed in blood in that sense. Um, he was, he's, he's a bloody man. Um, dressed also is what you do to animals um, after you've hunted them and killed them. You then dress them. Yeah. Well, yeah, like my, the first one I read it was that He's saying um, his lover is, um, it's better for his, it's best for his lover to be in his blood. So, huh. that's, I mean, that's how I initially first read it, that he, he courts the destruction for himself, but also for the other, for whoever he's with. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, I see, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that is that whoever he's fighting in fighting um, a battle of love, he likes the idea that that um, the other okay, person, person or having his blood on that person. Yeah. In other words, a lover dressed in his own blood 
in my own blood. A lover dressed in my own blood, that's what I really like. Um, you know, that, that's what I would pay for that. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think it, it's all those things at once. And I do think it goes back to the, the bloodiness of his birth um, and the horror that haunts him from that moment on. Um, and then we get this last stanza, which is um, the, like the first stanza, kind of frame. That is, it's a more general um, uh, description. And what it actually is is a heraldic description. So, um, well, Zach, read it, and then, then we'll say more. This is the only banneret that ever love created yet though by the malignant stars forced to live in storms and wars. Yet dying leaves a perfume here and music within every year. And he in story only rules in a field sable a lover ghouls. Yeah. So um, we talked about this before, but anyone recognize that last line? Do you remember? Sounds like the mower. Um, yeah, because he's bloody. Um, the word... Um, so um, now, um, let's see, um, Pyrrhus, who black um, as his purpose when he lay couched in the ominous horse, um, now is total jewels, impasted thick with blood of mothers, brothers, infants, sons, um, thus, thus, um, or, or spread, or thus, or covered with coagulate gore, old grandsire Priam speaks. What play would that be from that we already mentioned a few minutes ago? <laughs> Hamlet. Hamlet. So Jules means scarlet. It's, um, and it's a heraldic word for bright red. Um, it was a Latin word for a kind of um, red ermine. Um, and heraldic words, this is actually not important, but important. Um, words in heraldry, um, colors were um, always associated with natural objects, with animals or with um, plants or with uh, metals. And um, when you do, they're, they're very strict rules. They're actually fascinating rules for how you describe um, a, a heraldic um, device, as they're called. Um, so you all know what they are. It's like, you know, the lion, the, the, the device of England is the lion and the unicorn, and on y soit qui mal y pense. Um, and um, they're, um, when you describe a shield, um, a coat of arms. There are really interesting rules about, about how you describe them. And one of those rules is that colors are always um, described not as, you know, on a, on a black field, a lover in red, but you have to use sable, which is a fur, and jewels, which is another fur, to describe those colors. Um, the other thing about, and you'll have things like a lion rampant, um, for example, or a lion erect. Another thing about heraldic terms is you can't repeat any word. Um, I mean, you can repeat articles like on a field, sable, a lover, jewels. 
but no major word can be repeated in any description of a device, which is why some of those descriptions are so weird if you've ever seen them, um, or if you ever do see them. They're, they are very strange. Um, and there are all sorts of other rules about um, heraldry. Have you ever heard, do you know the villain, the cartoon villain, Simon Bar Sinister? I think he might have been from Felix the Cat. We need to know. Uh, I forget where Simon, yeah, Simon Bar Sinister um, was a villain. You can tell from the word sinister. Um, He's a villain in some cartoon of my youth. It might be Felix, I think it's Felix the Cat. Um, Who did Boris and Natasha go against? They were against Rocky and Bullwinkle. Rocky and Bullwinkle, of course, they were two left wings on their plane. Um, Did you know that? They fly a plane that's Picasso-like because it has two left wings because they're Soviet Russia. Horace <laughs> Badnoff. The mad scientist. Yes, okay. There but he it, is. Simon Barr Simon Sinister. Simon Barr Sinister. <laughs> do we get a good look there? Okay. And do we know where he's from? Well, I've got a look. Okay. The underdog cartoon oh, show. Oh, the underdog cartoon show. Uh-huh. So that's, um, Barr Sinister is actually a heraldic term. And it means that in the left side of the shield, there's a bar has been placed. Um, the bar is placed there in order to indicate some disgrace to the family. So the shield mm-hmm. is barred in one place. And sinister on the left means it's a particularly bad bar because the left is bad luck. So sinister means left hand in Latin. Um, dexter and sinister is right and left. Therefore, if you're dexterous, you're doing something right-handedly. It's... Um, handism, uh, and if um, but sinister is the is the um, bad luck of what happens on the left. That's where our word goes. But a bar sinister then is a um, is a barring of part of the shield in its left hand side. Right. Yes. Yeah. So that's a that's the bar sinister coming moving, going from left to right. Yeah. There you go. So Simon <laughs> Bar Sinister. Um, oh, this one right here. Yes. And this is a whole collection of symbols. You could find it yourself. <laughs> um, and so um, the line that the last line of The Unfortunate Lover um, gives rise to in American literature, do you remember now? Is the last sentence of um, The Scarlet Letter, which is... Um, the narrator says, um, and um, to conclude this story, let us um, simply conclude it um, with a legend that is something you would write, like a legend on a coin, which we might put in old heraldic terms, and simply, he, he wishes this would be on, on uh, the gravestone, and simply have um, these words on a field sable, the letter A, jewels. So on a black background, a scarlet A. Um, that's Hawthorne's uh, version, and he's picking it up from this poem, um, which I was very proud to discover, and I went and asked a lot of Americanists, did you know that Hawthorne was probably thinking of Marvell? And they said, wow, no, that's interesting. Um, <laughs> and then I met, uh, met um, like, the Hawthorne person, and I said, 
and do you know about the unfortunate lover? And he said, yeah, the Hawthorne got on Phil Sable, the lover Jules from that, everyone knows it. So in fact, not everyone knew it, but he knew it. So it was completely pointless in every way that I was, thought I'd made this discovery. Um, it's like the armadillo in F. Scott Fitzgerald. In, in Tender is the Night, the passage where it talks about, there's a, he tells a story about a French scientist who studied the brain of an armadillo for two years and no one else had ever studied the, and then he published a paper and there were only like ten other papers on armadillo brains. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that from Tender's the Night. One of my favorite books. That is good. All right, so here's the banneret. Here's the heraldic description. Here's the emblem of love. And notice that he's saying this is the only banneret that ever love created yet. So um, all of love is like this. The unfortunate lover is an emblem for all love. And that goes back to the idea that the infant love makes things pleasant, but after that, they very quickly get unpleasant. The only difference between the unfortunate lover and most people is that he doesn't have that pleasant infancy in his experience, or doesn't have an experience of pleasant infancy. So he says, here's the story, here's my lover, here's what I've told, and then what I'm going to say is this is emblematic about all love. This is the only banneret that ever love created yet. Um, the word yet being picked up from the second line, with whom the infant love yet plays. Who, though by the malignant stars, force it to live in storms and wars. So the lover is forced by the malignant stars to live in storms and wars. Yet dying leaves a perfume here and music within every ear. So the lover dying and yet we feel some feel his idealism, feel um, the beauty of love. He's not demonstrated that in the poem. He takes it for granted that you know it. That is, that everyone knows that um, we have a sense of love as a perfume and a music. And he's saying, so there's the lover, and this is what he really is like, and all love is like that. And yet, there's perfume and music in the idea of love. And he, in story, only rules. So only in a story would you think of a lover as happy. It's, it's love is a storied thing, but not a real thing. At least you don't rule. No human being rules in love, in reality, only in story. And he, in story, only rules. And then the banneret is in a field sable a lover jewels and so against the black field he's scarlet red why covered in blood yeah and um, so a little bit of scholarship for you <laughs> um, it's improper in heraldry I'm sure Hawthorne did not know this but Marvell did um, one of the rules of heraldry is um, there's a distinction. This is true about, um, about flags as well. Um, there are two kinds of what we would call colors in flags and in heraldry. Um, they're what heraldic discourse calls colors, and those are everything 
except yellow and white. Yellow and white are not called colors in heraldry. They're called metals, M-E-T-A-L. And the rule in heraldry is that you cannot have a color on the background of another color. The background of a color can't be a color. It has to be a metal. Um, if you look at flags, um, if you look at the French flag or the Italian flag or the Irish flag, um, the white in those flags, the official name of that white is silver, and it's a metal between two colors, between red and blue in the French flag, um, between um, red and green in the Italian flag. And there's a rule, um, there's a very strict rule in flag making that recently has been ignored by some of the newer and, and less less um, traditional countries. But there's a very strict rule in flag making that you can't have two metals together, that a metal can't border another metal. So you're not supposed, there's never supposed to be a flag where white and yellow border each other. What's a contradicting example? I forget now, but I remember there was um, about uh, a quarter of a second. Doesn't have white and yellow or if I'm, I'm insane. Yeah. What's the one with the, it's a, like a light blue with a yellow. Sweet. Yeah, no, you can have a border. It's just that oh, okay. you can't have, you you know, in, in the French flag you have, um, you have red, white, blue. What you can't have is white, yellow next to each other. Okay. Um, you know, it makes sense. But So white is called silver. That's the metal. Um, what we call white is silver in heraldry and yellow is metal. What? Yellow metal, gold. Gold, good. You guys are so good today. You're just on. Um, Hamlet. Yes. Um, what'd you say? Yeah. Here's a flag with white and gold side by side. Oh, really? Yeah, I'll tell you what it is when it clears up. Please go on. Okay. Nature's first green is gold. Um, so the point is, Marvell actually really did know heraldry, as, as scholars know, because he had a huge correspondence in which he schooled some person who was saying um, something about heraldry, and Marvell said, actually, you're wrong. <laughs> um, so there's evidence that he really, really knew his heraldry. So um, again, this banneret of loves, it's wrong, heraldically speaking. Um, and that's an interesting fact that he is, he's intentionally violating. It's part of the discomfort of the poem that would be lost to us. Um, but every image in the poem is supposed to ick you out. And that's one of the mildly icky things. Is the, that's just wrong when it comes to heraldry. Um, anyhow, it's a really strange poem. And I think it's totally amazing. Lots of people just hate it. Um, but... I think you can hate it and find it totally amazing, too. And, um, and it's, it is useful to be reminded of how just very strange a lot of these poets are. Why do people hate it? They hate it because it's too weird. Because it's the worst love poem ever written. Well. Yeah. Well, people can't stand, and there she split against the stone <laughs> in a cesarean section. That, that almost does. sounds like McGonagall. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, and Taylor, I thought before you were suggesting that there's, great, there's enormous bathos in the line because you can't, you can't fail to visualize a woman running into a stone yeah. and bursting it In the worst possible yeah, way. Because <laughs> I thought it was literal. I was like, yeah. <laughs> did you really break against the I was very confused, and then I realized, okay, it's a metaphor. Yeah, but not a pleasant metaphor. Yeah, and 
it's just pushing really, really hard on this on this conceit of the shipwreck, um, as explaining all his unhappiness, um, and um, it's one of those questions where I mean you can't push a conceit farther, really, and there is a question. You know, because it's conceit, it's like each element of the conceit he follows up on with conceits on those elements of the mm-hmm. conceit. Um, and yet, so people who hate it just think, you know, this is just the, the strangest way of trying to describe someone who's unhappy in love. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, as, as we've seen, that there, there is a sense in which he just can't escape his, his birth um, and, and the misery of his childhood. Um, and that, that it's, um, um, you know, birth is destiny. Um, child, early childhood um, trauma is inescapable. And, um, you know, it doesn't play out as um, repression. It, it just plays out as, as unhappiness and, and terrible object choice. Um, but it's so daring. I mean, who would sit down and write a poem like this? You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's weird. It's all get out, I think. I thought this could, the, the fate of, what, of this person is similar to maybe that poem we read where the child falls back into the womb. Like, mm-hmm. Yes. They had to endure living. And yeah. I think they would be pretty tortured as well if they saw the world and decided to, like, no. Yeah. But you're right. It is a lot like that. Um, that the 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 um, infant, um, the brave infant who, is, as soon as he sees Hannibal um, destroying his town, the Retullian infant goes crawls back into the womb. Um, but then that poem normalizes itself because you know, but Carrie and Morrison, they they were really good friends and that was good. But this doesn't. Kind of, I, I kind of find it effective. In this sense, that the um, there's something torturous about the the, the conceit, yeah, um, and very involved in about the heraldic conceit, um, and it and it's so physically repulsive, um, with the emphasis on blood. But I, I guess it, it, that seems to be appropriate for the subject. Yeah, the whole thing is just sort of about this torturous psyche. Yeah, and so there's something about the knottedness of the poetry itself. I mean, I guess that's the imitative fallacy, but... No, I think still. it's... Right. Yeah. No, I, th- I think so. I mean, that's why I really like it. Um, but it, it, you know, it is an extreme poem. <laughs> um, extreme poetry. <laughs> um, and um, this is one. This is... Um, you can't really go farther, I don't think. You know, you can seem to go farther, but you just... It, it would, you wouldn't really be going farther. You'd just be aff- affecting strange language. But it's, it's hard to think of really going farther in, in sheer, well, yeah, tortured um, uh, painfulness of, of description in a figurative language than this. Um, and, uh, and, and it does seem right. I mean, it, it, it's, and it seems right partly because you feel it rather than perceive it. Um, it's not like, oh, yeah, I knew a guy like that. Um, but it's rather, oh, I knew that guy, and I wonder if this is how he was feeling. Um, and, um, you know, it, it conveys it. But it's definitely a, a, 
metaphysical conceit pushed very far. Let's look briefly at They Are All Gone Into the World of Light, if you have this book. Um, just because um, it's the best line ever. Um, in the uh, Norton, it's page 604. Uh, we won't be able to do the whole thing except to read through it. But um, Sorry, it's by Vaughn, so it won't be in that. So Vaughn was a follower of Herbert's. He, had, he worshipped Herbert. He was a religious poet. Um, and Vaughn. V a u g h a n Henry Vaughn. So, it's, um, and what he was basically doing is um, writing poems in which he was um, looking into himself in ways that he'd been taught to by Herbert. So he's not nearly as great a poet as Herbert because no one really is, um, but he's in that mode. And, um, and he has that great line about those who have died. They are all gone into the world of light, and I alone sit lingering here. Their very memory is fair and bright, and my sad thoughts doth clear. Um, so that last line is, uh, that fourth line is not very good. Um, it's actually interesting to see negotiations that almost great poets or almost you know really good poets, almost major poets do um, in order to preserve their really good lines, um, but they don't manage to have every line be really good. So, and my sad thoughts doth clear is not good. The doth there is is um, uh, amateur. Um, so he wants the rhyme um, that he likes their very memory is fair and bright and he wants the idea that their memory um, brightens his own thoughts um, but he can't get clear to rhyme with here unless he adds a doth um, and my sad thoughts clears is what it would be without the doth and it wouldn't rhyme um, but in a way, it's really valuable to read poems like this because you can see, it's almost as though you can see the poet at work, which is always an interesting thing to do. And you can see that what he's doing is um, working to rhyme with the lines that matter to him. And the lines that matter to him are, um, they are all gone into the world of light, and I alone sit lingering here. And then their very memory is fair and bright, that's fine. And my sad thoughts doth clear, no. Um, it glows and glitters in my cloudy breast like stars upon some gloomy grove or those faint beams in which this hill is dressed after the sun's removed. Um, so those are pretty good. Their memory is still bright for him. I see them walking in an air of glory because they're in heaven. I see them walking in an air of glory whose light doth trample on my days, my days which are at best but dull and hoary, mere glimmering and decays. O oh, holy hope and high humility, high as the heavens above, these are your walks, and you have showed them me to kindle my cold love. 
so you've gone to heaven, you're brightening my life here on earth, um, your humility has brought you to heaven, and you're trying to kindle, to light up my cold love. Dear, beauteous death, the jewel of the, of the just, shining nowhere but in the dark, what mysteries do lie beyond thy dust? Could man outlook that mark? Could man go see farther than the dust we turn into? He that hath found some fledged bird's nest may know at first sight if the bird be flown. But what farewell or grove he sings in now, that is to him unknown. So if you find an empty nest, you can tell immediately that the bird is gone, but you don't know where the bird is. That is to him unknown. Again, not a great line, that is to him unknown. Um, but it's framing, it's holding up, it's giving support to the great lines that precede it. And yet, as angels in some brighter dreams call to the soul when man doth sleep, so some strange thoughts transcend our wonted themes and into glory peep. Again, I think the first two lines, yes. Second two lines, a little bit less so. Peep? I don't know. And wanted themes, well, okay, that rhymes with dreams. You can frequently tell just which word is the word he's trying to rhyme with. And in a really great poem, you can't tell. Um, but here you can. If a star were confined into a tomb, her captive flames must needs burn there. But when the hand that locked her up gives room, she'll shine through all the sphere. O Father of eternal life and all created glories under thee, resume thy spirit from this world of thrall into true liberty. So I'm like a star captive in a room, the body, but take me back into the world of light. Either disperse these myths which blot and fill my perspective still as they pass, or else remove me hence unto that hill where I shall need no glass. Um, so, not a great poem, but a poem with terrific lines, of which the first one is the best. They've all gone into the world of light. Um, okay, now, um, have a good break. Two weeks from today. Was it